speak again this morning about love uh, in verses 9 through to verse 16. Uh, we have got 14 different aspects about love that Paul speaks about in this chapter. Uh, the last time I spoke, we dealt with that love is sincere, love is discerning, uh, love is that of tender affection, love shows honor, love is enthusiastic, it's full of zeal, uh, it's fervent in the spirit. It rejoices in hope and it's patient in tribulation. Uh, and this morning I want to continue on that same theme. And we're going to be looking especially from verse 13 through to verse uh, 16. So let's read that passage again from verse 9. Romans chapter 12, reading from verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, and do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Just so far. I came across a few uh, lovely lines that children filled in about love, and I just want to quickly read those to you. Quite amusing. Billy, aged five, says, When somebody loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know your name is safe in their mouth. Danny, age seven, says, Love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him, just to make sure that the taste is okay. Emily, aged eight, Love is when you kiss all the time. And then when you get tired of kissing, you just want to be together and talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that, but they look gross when they kiss. <laughs> Cindy, aged eight. During my piano recital, I was on stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one uh, doing that, and I wasn't scared anymore. And then Chris, aged seven, says, Love is when mommy and sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says that he's handsomer than Brad Pitt. <laughs> and then the last one, Jessica, aged eight. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. So we need to say, I love you, often. We need to say that to our wives. We need to say that to our husbands. But the first verse that I want to deal with here is that uh, love must be generous. It must contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute comes from the same word as kunania, which means fellowship. Uh, dealing with and sharing with the hurts 
and the heartaches of others. On another level, it deals with our checkbooks as well as our bank balance. You know? does, your, does your contribution to the work of the kingdom of God, does it come off the top or does it come off the bottom? It says here, contributing to the needs of the saints. When people uh, who belong to God are in need. You know, when you have to describe a Christian, do you describe him as a person who is generous? I would love to say that when you when you speak to somebody, when you see somebody, that's a generous, generous man. He has a heart of compassion. He has a sacrificial heart. A little survey was done, and American Christians are uh, only giving a percentage, a small percentage, to the work of the Lord. Christ, American Christians, okay, so it's 2.4 percent are giving to the work of the Lord on an average, which is which is a lot less in this nicer, I mean, we're going into a little bit of economic decline, but in this better economic climate than it was in the Depression. Christians during the Great Depression gave a, a, a lot, lot more than what they're giving now. But stewardship, generosity is not only about money. It's about a lot of other things. You know, we shouldn't aim to be less stingy than our neighbor. We're not called to live a little bit better than Scrooge down the road. We're not called to live a life that is dead free. We're not called to live life like anybody else. We are called to live life like Jesus. And he was a man who gave so much of himself. Gave all. Winston Churchill said this, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. How generous are you? Generosity is much more than giving wealth. It includes being generous in our attitudes, in our emotions, in our thoughts, our ideas, our time, our talents, and our treasures as well. And generosity doesn't come naturally to most of us. Life says, get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Some even consider generosity as a supernatural way of life. See, it's much more than just one event, or even two events. Generosity is a lifestyle. I mean, we need to realize how much God has given to us. For those of us sitting here, we come from a certain uh, demographic in, in society, and we, we're privileged, privileged. We're in the up 2-3% of the world's population. Some of us drive two vehicles. I mean, we can only drive one at a time, but we have two vehicles parked in our garage. And we, we own our own homes, or else we're renting a nice home in this lovely suburb of Somerset West, Strand, Gordons Bay. We're privileged. And God has given us so much. He gives us homes. He gives us food. He gives us families that love us and care for us. So much. And we, when we consider how much God has given to us, the only thing that is left in our heart is to give out to others in extravagant generosity. And when we realize that, I think that we will see a greater level of com commitment and volunteerism in the, in the life and the work of the church. We will see our finances going up. We will see uh, that we will be challenging the things uh, that, that um, materialism wants to devour in our lives. We won't be uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses. 
Generosity always comes out of a generous and grateful spirit. Out of a grateful spirit. The things that you're thankful for are the things that you're generous towards. And you easily give to those things. Generosity is never a guessing game. Have you ever been at a table and there's 12 people around and they munch in as much food as they can get and you think, oh, when that bill comes, who's paying? This is going to be like two and a half thousand rand. And it should never be like that. Never. Who's, who's going to pay the bill? Generosity is contagious too. And when you see people being generous, you think, oh, I want to be generous too. Isaiah 32 and verse 8 says this, But a generous man, Devises generous things. Hey, I love it. And by generosity, he shall stand. A few years ago, I heard a credible story. It was a church in Durban. And it was a special celebration service. And I had family that were there. And the minister, some of you might even know him, he said, oh, we want, to, we want to pray for the moms, the single moms of children who are still at home. One, two, three kids. The single mom. I want you to come and stand in the front if you want to pray for them. The moms came and they stood in front. And they prayed a lovely prayer. And then he said, I've got envelopes for you. And he gave each one of them an envelope. And they went and sat down and when they opened it up, it was 10,000 rand. I mean, I, I just, I, I love that story because I just sense the generosity. You know, single moms struggle. So, my uncle was there. He's been a Baptist pastor and he was in the process of resigning or retiring, rather. And he, he got to that age and the Baptist church said, thanks. And um, one, of the, one of his children were members of that church and he had told. Uh, the, the pastor. The pastor said, we've got a visitor here tonight. And um, he's a Baptist pastor. And he said, come, come forward and just say something. Said something. We want to pray for you. You're going on retirement. Prayed for him. He said, you know, we just thought we'd give you a gift. Now, this is one of the first times he's ever been in this church. Like handed him an envelope. You've served God faithfully over the years and we just want to bless you. So, like, Participated in the service, and after the service, they got in their car. And he was driving away, and his wife said to him, "My aunt said, how much? What happened? What the hell? What, what is what is in the envelope?" So he said, "No, it's a check." So he's like trying to drive. It's dark now. He's just looks and says, "What two thousand rand? That's amazing." So he gave it to her. She looked at it. This is not two thousand rand. This is twenty thousand rand. I love that generosity. It seems a bit extravagant. But isn't God extravagant in His love towards us? And the people that are spoken about in the Bible, aren't they extravagant? When Mary comes and broke, breaks open that expensive bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus, you know, that's extravagant. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And then the second one says here, 
be hospitable. The ESV says in four words, seek to show hospitality. The New Living Translation says in 19 words. Now, from two words to 19, I mean, this is taking a bit of liberty. You know, but this is what it says, and I think it communicates it well. Get into the habit of inviting guests home for dinner, or if they need lodging for the night. The NIV says just practice hospitality. Get into the habit of inviting guests. Anybody need accommodation tonight? <laughs> Anybody? See, hospitality comes from two words. Xenos. Xenos, stranger. Xenosphobia, the fear of strangers. That was rife in this country a little while ago, and every now and again it pops up at different places. Xenophobia. But here we need to have a love. Hospitality is a xenosphilia, a love for strangers. That's what it means. In the Roman Empire it was it was dangerous. Some of the inns that people stayed in were, were, not, were not great places. And we need to be people of xenophilia to love strangers. And, I mean, God treated us as strangers. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13. This is what it says. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hospitality is not just entertaining guests. Come to our house, we're going to watch the World Cup together. Ooh, I think it's 31 days, 14 hours, 2 minutes, or something ridiculous like that. Before the World Cup starts, I'm looking forward to it. It's not it's not entertaining. This 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 is saying to strangers, we had that experience when we were growing up. I, I came out of a pastor's home. My, my my dad was a minister for many, many years and you know, and I was the one because I had the best room downstairs. My brother and sister had the smaller rooms upstairs. And I had the best room downstairs. So you know, my mom used to say, We have guests coming next week. I needed to move out of the room. I was the one who had to pay the price. I was the one who had to get the foam mattress and sleep in the lounge floor. But I'm used to it. And so, when we initially moved to Stellenbosch, we had people come and they say, we, we've got family, but, but they're moving in at the same time as we're here for a conference, and uh, we wonder if you could stay with you. And let me tell you, these people, they were absolute strangers to us, but we have become such good friends. Unbelievable. And every time they come and they visit family here, and more family have come to Stellenbosch, all three children have moved to Stellenbosch in the last five years, and they come often and we see them. And we always connect. And I mean, very good buddies. We've gone to stay with them several times in Mossel Bay. Love it. When we were traveling now to England, we, we, we went to a little town south of London, and uh, I was going to preach there, and I said to, to the guy, Steve Fishpool, who was the pastor there, who's coming out for the conference, I said, Steve, are we staying with you? He said, no, no, I'm not staying. So I said, where are we staying? He said, well, it's going to be a new experience for them, because this is the first time it's ever happened to them. I've asked them to host you two. <laughs> it was entertaining. 
You talk about a British family with stiff upper lip. I mean, really, I mean, really, really classy people. So we, we, we came in and gregarious South Africans as we were. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Richard. But as we spoke and as we shared, slowly but surely, when we left the next day after the service, she came up to us, bye-bye, and gave us a great big hug. I think it was such an experience for her, you know. These people are actually quite friendly. These people are actually quite nice. <laughs> I think they, I think, I hope they thought that we were quite nice. But it was an experience. And I mean, I, I think that we do something when we invite strangers into our home. You remember in Matthew 26 and verse 18, Jesus, just before uh, going to Jerusalem, said to his disciples, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Just come into your house with my disciples. I mean, to entertain Jesus. Just before his crucifixion, I don't think he probably realized he knew who this person was. Maybe he knew Jesus, of Jesus, but not the importance of Jesus. But afterwards, can you imagine? Jesus comes to his house. Things unfold. The Christian faith bursts out across the world. and He begins to realize. This Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he was in my house. But listen to what Matthew 25 and verse 40 says. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. That's what hospitality does. People come into the life of this congregation and a lot of them stay. Why? Because they are overwhelmed by the friendliness. That's just the shallow end of hospitality. That's just the shallow end of evangelism as we draw people in and we show friendliness to people. See, hospitality is contagious. And when people experience hospitality at, at a very minor level of greeting at the door, they will between 8 and 15 times tell other people about that. When they've come and eaten at your house, 8 to 15 times they will tell people, eat together, be together, fellowship together, but practice hospitality. That's what the Bible says. The third one is, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Inserted into every word there is kindness. Huh? Bless those who persecute you. That's tough. That's tough. They're antagonistic towards you. I would like to give them a curse back. 
don't you start with me. I'm a big dude. I'm an ex-policeman. Don't you come sooky in trouble with me. But, our job is to bless. Listen to what the second half, bless and do not curse them. You know, every now and again we feel like we've been mistreated. That's okay. You know, if you're big and ugly enough, you can handle it. But if you feel that your wife, your family, your friends are being mistreated, then you get serious. But it says, bless. Do not curse. Bless. It's not being stoic and practicing sub-vocal cursing. I'm not going to say anything to them. Stupid people. That's sub-vocal cursing. You, know, you might not say to them directly. It doesn't even say that. It says, bless those people. In other words, this is a contrary attitude to have. They come in with their aggression. They come in with their aggro and their annoyance and whatever they want to say to us. And people can be nasty. You know, I've been in ministry for 38 years, mental, and I have got some serious scars. And some of those scars have come from people that we've really loved. At a certain point, they've turned tail. Not, not often. Thank God for that. But boy, oh boy, we've had those. And we have to bless. How do we bless somebody? Who's cursing us? We are to bless and ask God to do for them what we would want God to do for us. That's blessing. Do for them what we want God to do for us. The interesting thing is that when God gives you an enemy, it's for a reason. Richard, really? Do you know what you're saying right now? It's for a reason. It's to keep us humble. It's to keep us on our knees. That God is our source. God ultimately is our friend and we can go to Him at any time, at all times. You remember that verse in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse uh, 20. Joseph was hated by his brothers. They wanted to kill him. One of the brothers said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just put him down a, a, a well. He can sort of die down there of thirst and hunger. And so they put him down the well and, oh, here come some Ishmaelite slave traders. Which says to me that God is engineering the situation anyway. I mean, in the middle of the desert, some slave traders are coming past just as they're lowering him down into the well. Okay, no, no, no. Let's let's sell him. We can make some bucks here. Sell him. God is engineering this whole thing. And years later, here stands Joseph, second in charge of Egypt, running the show. And here are his brothers. Can you imagine? He could have just said, ah, revenge is sweet. He didn't. 
You meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. But he didn't stop there. He's only a comma. But God meant it for good. God means it for good. When you get blasted by others, and our response needs to be, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Whatever happens, just be kind. Henrietta Meyer said this, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, and learning. William Barclay said this, more people have been brought into the church by kindness and real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven from church by the hardness and the ugliness of so-called Christianity than all the doubts of the world. I want to tell you a story now. And it says about reaping and sowing. Sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. That's the essence of my You reap what you sow. There was an old Scottish farmer, poor, poor as dirt, in a hovel. Came out, was walking into the field to work one day, and he heard a shout in the distance. He dropped his tools and he ran over the hill, and he saw a boy who had walked into some uh, soft mud bog and was up to his waist. He was stuck. He couldn't move. He was shouting, help, help, help. And Farmer Fleming pulled this little boy out. The little boy went off to his home, thanked him very much, and went off to his home. The next day, a carriage drew up next to the little hovel of Farmer Fleming. And this man got out. He was a nobleman. And he said, can I pay you? You saved my son's life. And Farmer Fleming said, no, no, no. Don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's okay. And as they were talking, young Fleming came to the door. The son of Farmer Fleming. And, and, and this nobleman said, I take it you don't want any gift from me, but can we pay for your boy's education? And he said, yes, that's fine. This young boy went on to complete his education and he studied at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. He was known as the noted Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Years later, the nobleman's son got pneumonia. What saved him? Penicillin. What was the nobleman's name? Sir Randolph Churchill. What was his son's name? Winston Churchill. One of the leading figures in the last century. You reap what you sow. So I'm saying to you, sow kindness. Sow kindness all the time. When lost, did you get a blanket? On a cold winter's night when you're watching TV for your wife. When last did you prepare supper for somebody? Coffee for somebody? If all your kind deeds 
what ten cents for and all the unkind things that you did and said you had to give five cents away see there's not an equal thing here would you be bankrupt some people would kindness kind hearts are quietly kind you can tell a lot by a person in the traffic flicker goes on you're not coming into my lane just pip 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 okay I'll let you in that's quietly kind listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 10 when you have an opportunity to help anybody you should do it should give special attention to those who are in the family of believers. Do good, especially to fellow Christians. How about Paul when he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 34, 32, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why do we need to forgive? Because everybody makes a mistake. Forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. How about Luke chapter 6? There's some verses there. But I say to you, you hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless and do not uh, bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Very Paul is just really repeating the words of Jesus. Verse 29. Sorry, 32. Verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And verse 35 and 36. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. When I was younger, I admired clever people. Now that I'm older, 61 yesterday. Now that I'm older, you don't have to clap. You don't have to clap. You can give me lint chocolate, but don't clap for me. <laughs> now that I'm older, I admire kind people. There are three things in life that are important. And the first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. The third is to be kind. Fourth one. Quickly now. Love must show sympathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, love gets involved. Love gets its hands dirty. It's not stoically standing on the side and, bless uh, you, brother, getting involved, weeping with those who weep and laughing with those who laugh. Eugene Peterson says in his translation of the message, laugh with your happy friends when they're happy, shed tears when they're down. And it speaks about the extremes of life here. When you're on top of the world, rejoice with those people. When you're down in the pit, cry with those people. Sometimes I think, which is harder? Crying or rejoicing? 
Sometimes I think rejoicing is the tough one. Rejoicing. You know, rejoicing with those who did well in the exams and you didn't do so good. <laughs> when somebody else has a birthday and gets some nice presents. When somebody else gets a promotion or has a baby or graduates. When you're watching your son or grandson score a try at school. thing for us is to never be a party pooper, a negative Nelly, or a sulking Sam. They don't deserve it. But to be able to rejoice, seriously rejoice with those people. And when they're sad, is to cry with them. Like a little boy who got up onto a, an old man's lap and said, gave him a hug, just lost his wife. And Mom said, what are you doing? helping Uncle Sam to cry. Let's do that. And the, sometimes the best thing, and Carl can verify this, sometimes I, I, I can say a whole lot of things and sometimes this, this Christianese, somebody's hurting, somebody's lost a family member, you're just there. You don't want to, well, this is the time that God called a person. God's got a, he's planted a flower in, in heaven and some nonsense like that. But just to sit there and to cry with the person. That's what the Bible is asking us to do. It's about friendship. Number five, love must be in harmony. Live in harmony with one another. The Greek here says, think of the same things towards each other. Just be in harmony. You know, you think harmony is like, you know, we, we one of the privileges that we had just recently was to go to Cambridge. And Cambridge and Oxford always have this competition of this boat race that they have every year on the Thames River. And, um, you know, you see those guys. They've trained so well and they, they row. All of them, and everything is in unison. That could be harmony. But really, harmony really is when you harmonize Different instruments are taking place. They are very different. And they are harmonizing. They are using different keys. But they are harmonizing together. And we are all different here. We come different ages, different backgrounds, different gifts. And we need to harmonize and work together. But we need to do that. You see, if you're not helping row the boat, you're rocking the boat. And we need to really help harmonize. But every now and again, you've got a guy, a girl, doesn't necessarily need to be a he, it can be a she as well, who is a disruptor in a church. You know, I want to just say to you, the person, been here 38 years, the person who is the biggest disruptor in the church is the unteachable one. He's got all the answers. He's walked with the Lord all the years, come out of different backgrounds, I know my Bible. Unteachable. That person is the most dangerous person in the church. Got it together because they're unteachable. Unteachable. That smart, smart guy. Got all the answers. You see, first of all, he's gospel eclipsing. When Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples. Making disciples is 
one who is under discipline, somebody who is constantly learning. And no matter what age you're in, I came into Josh Chen, I had 20-something years of, of ministry. I came into Josh Chen and I was serving under guys who had not even been in ministry for, 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 less than, for, for more than a year. Man, I had to do such recalibration. And I, God spoke to me about my unteachable heart. And I was causing ripples. Richard, you need to be teachable. You need to realign. You're coming into a different strain. You're coming into a different stream. You need to learn. And so when we are unteachable, we have this thing, um, I don't need to learn anymore. But a disciple always learns. He's a person who's critical. James chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20 tells us, Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And we can be critical, slow to speak. We're so full on into our opinions. You know, what, what are they doing? You know, this is my opinion. This is what they should be doing. And he's this divisive. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition. The very interesting thing is that um, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 18, uh, Jesus speaks about if somebody is divisive, if somebody is causing trouble in the church, you go to him personally and you say to them, hey, I want you to sort this thing out. If they don't listen, then you go back to them and you say, with somebody else, and you say to them, hey, you need to sort this thing out. And if they still don't listen, you take it to the whole church. And if they still don't listen after the whole church has been uh, spoken to, then you say to them, we no longer want you to associate with you. You are like a tax collector or a pagan. That's how we need to deal with divisive people. Because, you know, an unteachable person is like a robber of joy. Just put up Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Remember those who rule over you and who have spoken the word of God to, to you, those who, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of conduct. That's the wrong one. That's 17, I'm sorry. It's verse 17, I think. Obey your leaders and submit to them. There we go. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Some members, nobody here, really, nobody here. Some members, oh, I look at them and I, oh God. Yeah. It's not joy. It's not joy. And it's a terrible thing to serve the family of God with just no joy. But the Bible says, guys, fill your leaders with joy. Fill your leaders with joy. So, I'm going to push on now. Number six. 
humility. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Don't be a snob. Don't be conceited. Don't be wise in your own thinking. Never have a big head. Make real friends, even with poor, lowly people. Jesus was never a snob. He sat down with lowly people. He sat down with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with drunkards. He had the harshest words for the Pharisees. He went into widows' homes and robbed them. But he was a friend of sinners. <laughs> I love the story. D.L. Moody was approached by a man. And he said to D.L. Moody, I am a self-made man. And D.L. Moody said back to him, You have relieved the Almighty of a great responsibility. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and Peter. Peter is a guy who tips uh, the scale here. I mean, with, with, with his past, he speaks about humility and he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, And all of you serve each other in humility, for God opposes the proud and favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. It says humble yourselves. It's your responsibility to keep yourself humble. And if you don't want to do that, others will maybe keep you humble, and you do not want God to keep you humble. Because that will be a very painful experience. Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, that at the right time He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. And then Paul, in Philippians 2 and verse 3 to 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. I think one of the most attractive features in the church, one of the most attractive features, virtues in leadership, is humility. True humility. Is one who doesn't think meanly of himself, but who doesn't even think of himself at all. That's true humility. I was so hurt by what this person said. Don't even think of yourself at all. Just respond with humility. Rick Warren said, Humility is not denying your strengths. Humility is being honest with your weaknesses. Love it. So, these six features about love. Which one are you going to grab a hold of? Pray about. Pray into. Think about. Ponder on this next week. Generous. Hospitable. Kind. Sympathetic. Working in unity and harmony. Humble. Which one? Three weeks ago I said, turn to somebody and say to them, which one? Let's do them again. Think of which one to share with somebody next to you. Generous. Hospitable. Kind. Sympathetic. Unity. Harmony. Humility. Which one are you going to pray about this next week? Which one are you actively going to engage with? Have you thought of a person? You know, love is specific. So think of a person that you need to be more humble with. Think of a person that you need to be more kind to this next week. Share quickly with somebody and then I'll finish off.
Okay. Let's let's finish off. I just I just wanted to say one of the things that the world wants outside as they look into the church that they, they, they don't want good programs. They don't want their kids cared for. They don't want uh, good biblical teaching. What they want is a place where they can be loved and to experience love. Jesus said in John 13 and verse 35. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we if we truly love one another in accordance with Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, let me tell you the world will sit up and take huge, huge notice of it. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 7 says this. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's love one another. Let's pray together.